Is Cleveland actually lifting the curse of Wahoo? The Guardians, against all early season predictions, have clinched their division. No one saw that coming. Youngest team ever to do it. What will happen in October? Can't wait to see. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi. And Lisa, it's just a surprise to be seeing that the Guardians will play in October in the first season under the new name. Yeah, I guess I'm going to have to buy some Guardians gear, huh? (laughs) Well, you know, we were talking about that this morning. In my wife's school, they have these spirit days where you have to wear the team jersey of of the week. Well, hardly anybody has Guardian stuff because they haven't had a lifetime to collect it. I've got a lot of that stuff start selling. We're going to do a story telling people how they can save some money on it because everybody's going to want it. Okay, let's begin. One way to know if a candidate has appealed to the masses is to examine where their campaign donations come from. Reporter Andrew Tobias did that with the Senate campaign in Ohio. Lisa, what are the differences between the fundraising of Tim Ryan and J.D. Vance? Yeah, this was a very interesting breakdown by Andrew Tobias. He looked at several different donor pools for both of the candidates for U.S. Senate. And if, in, in, in all categories, the Democrat Tim Ryan has been outraising uh, J.D. Vance by quite a bit. Ryan has raised $21.7 million through June. $8.7 million of that is from small money donors of $200 or less. Um, he also got nearly a million dollars, about $918,000 from PACs, including from organized labor and single issue groups like Narrow Pro-Choice Ohio, the National League of Conservation Voters, and he raised $777,000 in the five days after the June Dobbs decision. So that shows that people were motivated by that. He also uh, got a lot of uh, donors from the maximum, the maximum amount you can give as a donor is $5,800. Ryan had 324 donors who hit that mark and beyond, including money from George Soros, his son and daughter-in-law, Youngstown Firework Executive Bruce Zoldan, who uh, uh, held a a fundraiser, I guess, and Paul Simon, the the singer, was there, Richard Rosenthal, who's a big Democratic donor and a Cincinnati philanthropist, and LinkedIn co-founder Reid Hoffman and Columbus developers Ron and Ann Pizzuti, who also gave money to GOP candidates. And Ryan didn't get a whole lot of PAC money. I mean, you know, uh, big PAC money from National, but Future Forward PAC did spend $2.8 million on Vance attack ads for Ryan back in July. He didn't get a lot of National Democratic money. That money's being spent on other races, Democrats in Arizona, Georgia, New Hampshire, and Nevada. So now let's take a look at J.D. Vance. So you look at Tim Ryan's $21.7 million through June. Well, J.D. Vance raised $3.6 million in contributions since June. He spent uh, $2.6 million on this primary, though, which is full of contestants. And, you know, it was a hard fought win. So he spent a lot of money in May. Um, He got some help from PayPal co-founder Peter Thiel, as we know, who gave him $15 million via Protect Ohio Value Super PAC. Um, He didn't get as much PAC money as Ryan either. Vance got $310 thousand dollars in PAC money. 248000 of that is from single issue people like Cook Industries, Marathon, Phillips 66, and CatholicVote.org. He also didn't do well in small money donors. He only got $95,500 from small money donors. 
Yeah, I, I the Vance campaign is is a strange one to me. Although he is going to get a big boost, he, the 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 Haslam's, the owners of the Browns, had a big fundraiser for him in Columbus, and surprisingly, they're doing one in Bratton Hall. I mean, Northeast Ohio was not a Republican bastion, and it's amazing to me that these out of town owners come in by the Browns, and now they're pushing to get in Northeast Ohio this very unlikable J.D. Vance promoted to Senate. But yeah. they'll get some money out of that. I hear they've been hitting up people all over town to come. And a lot of people are like, what? No way. Well, and it's, it's interesting that the Haslam's, you, as you said, they're hosting two fundraisers. The second one will be October 12th at their Bratton All Home. And interestingly enough, the the people that Vance beat in the primary, Mike Gibbons, Bernie Moreno, and Jane Timken, will all be in attendance at that fundraiser. Yeah, yeah, let's, let's say, well, it's just, it, it, it's an odd one that the Haslam's are putting their names behind him. Okay, good story. Check it out. It's by Andrew Tobias, and it is on Cleveland.com. It's today in Ohio. Speaking of the Senate race, Andrew also looked at J.D. Vance's new ad strategy to try and dislodge centrist voters from Ryan. Layla, what is his message, and is there any truth in it? Well, Tim Ryan has spent months trying to hold Joe Biden at a distance, and J.D. Vance has set out to really dismantle that centrist image, as you said, with this this new ad called Two Tims. And it features Vance narrating and, and opens by juxtaposing a, a Ryan campaign commercial saying he, quote, doesn't answer to any political party with the November 2016 MSNBC interview in which Ryan says, quote, I love Nancy Pelosi. So Andrew Tobias points out that the editing of Vance's new ad leaves out entirely the context of that interview. In the aftermath of Trump's victory in 2016, Ryan was talking in that interview about what turned out to be an unsuccessful challenge of Pelosi as the U.S. House Speaker, and he framed that decision as a painful disagreement with a family member. So that really wasn't captured in the I love Nancy Pelosi quote that just came out of there, uh, totally out of context. So the Vance ad then points out Ryan's 100% record of voting with Biden and accuses Ryan of being soft on the southern border. It points out it points to a new website the Vance team set up documenting what it views as examples of Ryan's record contradicting the image he's tried to cultivate through his ads on issues like taxes, China and wokeness. Andrew says this is all because polls are showing the race is tied and that a surprising percentage of centrist Republicans view Ryan favorably. Polls tend to be really unreliable, but neither candidate can leave it to chance. So for his part, Ryan has been openly courting those center-right voters, attacking Vance on issues like policing and emphasizing his opposition to free trade deals and framing Vance's 100% pro-life stance as totally extreme in the aftermath of overturning Roe v. Wade. The, there's such a difference in the way these two guys come across. Vance comes across as a stiff. It almost is like he doesn't even want to win. And then Ryan comes across as just a regular guy. He's got a great ad where he's throwing footballs. Yeah, I, know, I saw that. It's great. It's hilarious. And the last one has Vance on the screen. But he comes across like a regular guy talking to people in a in a conversational tone. And Vance comes off as like this 
screechy stiff. And the, the difference could not be pr- more pronounced between these two guys. I'm not surprised there's not going to be a debate or it doesn't appear there's going to be a debate between the two. It would not do well for Vance, as he's such a stiff, to go up against Ryan, who seems so much in his element in this campaign. Yeah, it, uh, it it bodes well for Vance that the Republicans are anti-debate, doesn't it? <laughs> it's very convenient that they can all just say no to the debates and stand on their, you know, their principles <laughs> against debate because you're right, they would, he, he just wouldn't do well on, <laughs> I think in that kind of I, setting. I think this is going to be the first time uh, for the editorial board to have a senator candidate not appear for an endorsement interview, J.D. Vance, mm-hmm. I don't believe is going to appear. That's oh, I, I hadn't heard that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, we I don't think we've heard from him, and the, based on what it sounds like, he's not. And it's one of those. What do What do you? I guess he figures, why should I? You're not going to endorse me, but why not go toe to toe? Why not show that you've got some stuff? The fact that you're not facing off with him is kind of a, a cowardice and you would expect him to to try and give what for. He did debates in, didn't he, in the primary. He was participated in the debate in the primary. Why not participate here? But it may be because Tim Ryan just went on him because he's so much more comfortable. You're listening to Today in Ohio. You have to give credit to the organizers of Front, the huge art installation that has had two cycles in Cleveland. They had a symposium to hear what people think of the current state of the art scene and welcomed pointed criticism about how Cleveland's major institutions treat artists and minority populations. Laura, what did they say? They gave Cleveland's big institutions a big, fat F. And yes, this came up at this day-long symposium um, organized by Front International, which is the Cleveland Triennial for Contemporary Art. And the Cleveland Museum of Art was there, the Museum of Contemporary Art Cleveland, the Cleveland Institute of Art. And they had a morning panel where they all cited percentages of increased diversity on their staff. They showed the art that they're buying is more diverse and the students that they're admitting is wider range. But the, the leading Black artists and cultural entrepreneurs, they say, they could do so much more to address these longstanding racial inequities and injustices in Northeast Ohio, and that the efforts that they are making hasn't changed the life of the communities around these institutions. What's interesting is we're talking about a morning panel and an afternoon panel, and most of the folks from the morning panel were not there to hear these criticisms. Which kind of goes to show what the disconnect is. I mean, yeah. one of the reasons you might get an F is if you don't stick around to hear this kind of criticism so you can change. We did talk last week about the Cleveland Art Museum and how it's trying to change its focus. And that would attack some of these issues, right? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense that they're they're reaching out to the community. They don't want to be this stuffy, like high end only for the philanthropists. They want to be a welcoming community for all of Cleveland. And so the Cleveland Museum of Art between 2015 and 2021 has increased the number of employees in its curatorial department who self-identify as BIPOC from 16% to 35%. That's a pretty big jump in 16 years. Education department from 18% to 44%. And so they want to have these college graduate level internships and fellowships for minority students and programs encouraging high school students to consider careers in art history and museum management. So I think they're working on it, but it's not immediate. You know, these kind of things are looking at pipelines and and long-term programs. They're they're not going to change at the snap of a finger. 
I, I I just give them credit for having the symposium to hear mm-hmm. the criticism because it's all part of the same art scene. And by having some self-examination, that's the way forward. And so it was a great conversation. Steve looked a nice job capturing it. Absolutely. It's today in Ohio. Lisa, you get the cool science story of the month. A robot submarine has spent August and September trolling about Lake Erie. What's the goal and what's the story? Yeah, it looks like a little red submarine, it's, but it's it's not a submersible. It runs along the surface. It's a NOAA vessel from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. It's called Drix-12. It's unmanned. It costs two hundred. I'm sorry. It costs two million dollars, and it's been in Lake Erie since late August. And what they're doing is they're surveying the lake floor around Cleveland and South Bass Island. And we will have the Drix 12 in our waters through the end of this month. It's working along with the 208 foot survey vessel Thomas Jefferson, which has 38 crew members that work 24 hours a day. So the cool thing about this Drix, normally to map the floor, they have two 29-foot boats with sensors that can only work about 12 hours a day maximum. Well, the Drix can work five days nonstop before refueling. It covers 40% more area than those 29-foot boats. And it's also semi-autonomous. I mean, it can run by itself, but it also can be run fully remotely by, you know, people on board the Thomas Jefferson. It's a multi-beam sonar. It makes 3D maps of the lake floor. And it also has an echo sounder that detects marine life. Um, This is the first one that NOAA has purchased. They tested one back in 2019. They say it's actually cheaper than the research ships like the Thomas Jefferson, it's faster and more enduring, you know, more enduring and more reliable. It's made by a French maker called IX Blue, which manufactures special devices for space, maritime, and defense industries. And interestingly enough, 93% of the Great Lakes is unmapped, and that's 45,000 nautical square miles that has not been mapped. So I guess if they map all the Great Lakes, it's going to find all sorts of interesting things like shipwrecks, right? I mean, we we report every once in a while that somebody has located another boat that went down back in the day. But if you're mapping the entire sea floor, you would think that you would start to find some other things down there. Oh, I am sure. And, you know, I'm sure there are tons of shipwrecks in all the Great Lakes that people may have even forgotten about. There might be gold in them thar hills. No, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but after, and go, I, go ahead. Well, you, when you're spending all this money to map the sea floor, it seems like, okay, it's great. We'll get to know what the, the, the floor of Lake Erie is and the other Great Lakes. But what is the benefit of mapping the the floor of the lake? I would think you wouldn't. <laughs> I mean, you you could possibly find like underwater, you know, um, problems, you know, for for shipping, you know, whether there's something that's in the way, um, and just learning the true depths of the lake. I mean, I think the more we know about what goes on underwater, and we don't. Most of the Earth is covered with water. Almost. None of that has been mapped. So, I mean, I think we need to learn more. And we have, you know, faults out there. We do have earthquakes out there, so they can learn more about faults. Yeah, we have quite a few, especially off of Lake County. It's a good story. It's on Cleveland.com. It's today in Ohio. Let's catch up with Cleveland's Promise, our innovative series examining what actually goes on in the classroom. We're a full weekend to it. Layla, what were some of the highlights of the first week? Hannah Drown and Cameron Fields have produced some really beautiful work in this first week. Among my favorite stories is this very poetic piece about fourth grade teacher Mrs. Sharon Lenahan and how she 
dreamed since childhood of becoming an educator and followed that dream despite feeling as though few in her life supported her pursuit of it. And I also should point out that by the end of our first week of content, Mrs. Lenahan, who we had been calling Miss Carol Smith for the first few stories to protect her identity upon her request, had had decided that she wanted to be identified in this project. So we obliged her. So if you've been following along so far and got a little whiplash over that change, we apologize. But our teacher decided that she did indeed want to be openly associated with this journalism. And so her uh, her name does appear in the series from from this time forward. That but, story about her is just charming. Mm-hmm, I mean, I it's know. such a wonderful. I I, mm-hmm. You sent it to me after Hannah wrote it. I don't know, a couple of months ago, and yeah. it was that was the moment I thought, it's like poetry. Okay, this is going to be a great series. <laughs> I know. I love that. I love that piece. But we also follow Miss Len- Mrs. Lenahan's class through a social emotional learning lesson in the classroom where they learn about empathy. And without spoiling this piece, by, by the end of the story, you really get to see this very tender moment between a student and one of our reporters that comes straight from that lesson. And then Cameron Fields writes this wonderful essay about the many sources of support for students of color at at Elmira Elementary School and and how that compares to his own experience as a a black student in a majority white school district in the suburbs. And he remembers some of his black peers feeling disregarded by their white teachers while while Cameron himself felt kind of tokenized for being an excellent, high-performing black student. But at Elmira, he gets the sense that all students of color are recognized for their potential. And he writes this really terrific reflection of that. And then finally, we read chapter one of, of Grace's story. She's a student in Mrs. Lenahan's class who has grappled with homelessness in recent years with her mother and siblings. And in the story, she's riding the bus with her classmates on her way to a field trip downtown when she says to Hannah, oh, look, I, I used to live there. And Hannah looks out the bus window for, for a house. And of course, Grace is pointing to a homeless shelter. And that's where we begin to learn Grace's really tragic backstory, which involves the murder of her father, her mother's drug addiction and, and struggle to remain in sobriety and, of course, housing insecurity. And, and that's only the beginning. Readers are going to learn much more about Grace in the coming chapters of Cleveland's Promise. And this week, we have another five stories lined up for you. Right. It'll run every weekday this week, and then it'll go to two days a week next week. We're trying to do something here. We're trying to redefine how we cover education and get away from the mechanics and things to really what is happening to educate these children that face all these hurdles. We've gotten some very good reaction from people, particularly teachers, who are glad that we're focusing on the core of what they do rather than what we traditionally have done. Mm -hmm. It's Today in Ohio. University Hospitals is cutting back on services again. Laura, where is it this time? Yeah, no more childbirth services at UH Portage, as in Ravenna. So people will have to travel about a half hour to Geauga County and Chardon. They'll still have comprehensive women and children's health care services, including OBGYN, physicians and midwife care, and surgical and breastfeeding and lactation services. But they cited, I mean, I feel like this is the broken record of the podcast, mm-hmm. right? A shortage of staff, a shortage of caregivers, and declining number of deliveries at UH Portage for reasons for the move. This starts in November. Um, and birthing care re- requires pediatric and OBGYN doctors to be available around the clock. 
because, you know, you might have an emergency C-section. You never know who's going to come in through the doors. And I think that's the problem. But I think this means there's nowhere in Portage County to give birth. And already in 2017, Medina is a county that has no birthing options either. And this is worrisome when you've got someone with a high-risk pregnancy who might need to go into L&D several times during their pregnancy just to get everything checked out. It's, it's not good news for expectant mothers. And we talk a lot about, you know, first-year Cleveland and infant mortality and the, the services. And this is just going against that. I feel like we might be missing a trend almost with what's going on with all of the hospital cutbacks. You know, we have St. Vincent Charity shutting Mm -hmm. down. We had the Bedford and Richmond Heights facilities pretty much shutting down. What's sad is Metro Health is about to open not only its main campus, but the new mental health hospital in Cleveland Heights, which was supposed to augment the available beds. But I think between the closures we've seen, it's basically going to replace them, that there won't be much of an addition and you you got to wonder whether the finance or financial situation for hospitals is really bad and that this is what this is a sign of and that they're doing all these things to basically survive. I think it's a well, shortage thing. I really do. Because if you have hospital beds, and that's what these these UH think, they're getting rid of hospital beds, that you have to staff them 24-7. You know, they re- people require specialized care. So, I mean, if you're looking to cut funds, you know, if you're trying to deal with a staffing shortage, what I mean, that's what you do, is you cut the most intensive thing, you know, employee intensive thing. And they're consolidating. Thinking about the big, you know, right. the new building going up at Ahuja, you're just going to have to drive further for care. And when you have an emergency, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I, but but there's been a lot of criticism about this happening, and I wonder if Lisa, you're right that there there's no choice that the the reduction of staff, the stress on the staff, that they're making decisions that they're basically in a position they're forced to make because they cannot do the job if they keep them open. It's just, you're just seeing a lot of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the past, what is it? Two months. Three we're months. Yeah. Talking about this a lot. And I imagine it's not the last, uh, which is why it's such a different story about what Metro health is about to do. Something we'll have to keep paying attention to. It's, it's today in Ohio. The mayors and managers of Cuyahoga County have predictably condemned a proposal from Lee Weingart, candidate for county executive, to create a uniform income tax across the county, distribute it based on historical collection trends, and stop giving millions of dollars to Rita to collect it. Many of these mayors have endorsed Weingart's opponent, of course. But Layla, why do they say they object to this seemingly common sense plan? Well, so the Cuyahoga County Mayors and City Managers Association are upset that they weren't consulted before Weingart rolled out the details of his plan. They have they haven't fully denounced it, but they want to be a part of it. They they wanted to be a part of the you know the planning of this, and they say it raises questions that still need to be answered. They're mostly worried about the losers in the plan, the taxpayers who may pay more under the plan, and and communities that might receive less revenue, which they say would impact a city's ability to provide critical services. Pepper Pike Mayor Richard Bain is the president of this association, and he, he told Caitlin Durbin that the full effects of remote working aren't fully understood yet. He doesn't believe that there's a one-size-fits-all solution. And he said communities need more time to monitor the impact 
remote working is having on community budgets before reshaping taxation. Mm -hmm. Taxation, He said some communities have been growing since 2019. So why should they be frozen in time and pegged to 2019? And he he also thinks Weingart's promise to rid us of Rita is kind of bogus because we're just swapping out Rita for the county. It's swapping one tax collection agency for another. Except so that's where they stand. Yeah. Except the county already collects taxes. It has an apparatus to collect property taxes and distribute it back. And Weingart is saying he would he would use that department. And what he would do is save the communities the fee. They all pay a huge fee to Rita. And he's saying he would eat that in the in the county budget. Look, it was all predicted that the mayors would come out against this. The mayors were the ones that were most vocal when we started talking about regionalism 20 years ago because they all are parochial. They all want to keep their little fiefdoms. It's not a surprise. Lee Weingart did say, I haven't set the rate. I haven't done all that. I want to work with the mayors. He's running for office and he floats an idea that he would champion. I'm not sure he has to go out and talk to all the mayors during a campaign. If he wins, he would want to talk to the mayors. But remember what Lee said in our editorial endorsement interview, because Chris Ronane raised this. You didn't even talk to the mayors. He said, you know what? You got the mayors. They endorsed you. The taxpayers are going to be with me on this. And I think he's right. If you put this before the taxpayers, mm -hmm. they hate Rita. They hate the confusion. And I think even if the mayor of Pepper Pike is saying, we don't want to do this, the voters in Pepper Pike might not listen to him. I guess, but he also came came to us to to lay out this plan and said, I wouldn't I wouldn't go to the ballot with this without consulting with all the mayors. Right, right. He said from the beginning, I'm gonna consult with the mayors. And so it's an odd criticism that they're saying he didn't talk to us first. He's running. He's not in an official capacity yet, but he's floated an idea that one starts on a path to regionalism and two simplifies life for a whole lot of people. Ask anybody who's trying to get a refund from Cleveland right now, whether they would rather have a simple system that wipes this out. I hear you, know? you man. I, I, there are a lot of merits to this. The one thing I just am stuck on is the pegged to 2019 mm. because there is that that wiggle room that he points to that says okay well there is a there would be a mechanism to amend that that you'd be able to uh you know to 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 change you know you 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 know you could that that's yeah. not permanent but right. any if you did if you were to change that if you were to that then Cleveland would be the giant loser cuz 2019 is the only year that can, you you'd have to stop there Forward from from 2019, Cleveland loses. Although uh, people are starting to come back to offices, I'm not. I think the one thing the Pepper Pike mayor said is we don't know what the future is of work from home because a lot of employers are realizing it's not working. I mean, look, we're returning to our newsroom three days a week starting tomorrow because we've recognized that problem. Of course, it's not in Cleveland; it's out in Brooklyn, so we don't have to deal with the CCA anymore. Thank heavens. Right. Anyway, good, it, not not a surprise that the mayors and managers have taken some aim at it. They have endorsed uh, Chris Ronane, but Lee Weingart has started an interesting conversation. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The Cleveland Orchestra is usually a source of good news in Northeast Ohio, but it got a black eye of sorts for its treatment of a transgender employee who ended up taking the orchestra to court. 
Lisa, what's the case about and how has it ended? Yeah, this federal lawsuit was filed by a transgender website developer for the Cleveland Orchestra, Rem Ransky. Uh, Ms. Ransky was hired in April 2021, but this was eight months after her gender-affirming surgery, but she immediately had complications, and she had asked the Cleveland Orchestra to, you know, help pay for that. Will insurance cover those, uh, you know, fixing those surgeries? Um, But... She was rejected. Um, The orchestra denied the claims as medically unnecessary. And then a physician reviewer of the case found that the procedures were absolutely needed, but they denied it because the policy has an exclusion for transsexual surgeries or any kind of treatments leading up to transsexual surgeries. So... uh, In a settlement on Friday, the orchestra agreed to pay Ms. Ransky's medical costs for the surgical procedures to fix those complications. And uh, the president and CEO, Andre, I think it's Glenn Millet, said that they overlooked an unacceptable coverage exclusion, and then they helped work to solve this complex insurance situation. And they say they have changed their coverage to cover similar procedures for all orchestra employees. Yeah, this made them look pretty bad when the news broke and you had to think that they would come to some sort of agreement in the end. And and alas, they have. It's today in Ohio. Laura, do we want to talk about the, how the September weekend weather is delightful after what we went through yesterday? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I think the point was we were searching for a perfect weekend because we promise ourselves that September is this delightful, like 70 degree and sunny. And instead we had three 80 degree weekends, a high of 87 last Wednesday, and then this plummet to cold. Although there were lovely moments of this past weekend. Friday night was great. Mm -hmm. Saturday night was really nice. Well, and then every three minutes yesterday, you'd have some sun and it looked nice and then it would pour. So you did have (laughs) literally moments. (laughs) You just had to be very aware of what you were doing and which hour and pay attention to your apps. But um, yeah, I went to the homecoming game on Friday night and people were literally in winter hats with their puffer jackets. And so it reminded me of Kelly Reardon um, a former meteorologist on staff, she wrote this story a couple years ago about why it feels so cold when we're used to the warm weather. And it has to do with the receptors in our skin. Because if you know, if there's a 50 some degree night in March, we'd all be like, it, you know, we're, it's bathing season. <laughs> Statistically speaking, the weekend just passed was supposed to be the most beautiful of the year. Yeah. It wasn't. So let's look forward to next weekend. Maybe we'll get it then. It's today in Ohio. That does it for a Monday discussion. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast.